Fed Talks is a podcast for theater teachers and theater education students. Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Chrisman, theater education professor at Illinois State University. Each week I bring you stories and interviews from experienced K-12 theater teachers, current theater education majors, professors of theater education, and teaching artists that will warm your heart, renew your faith in teaching, and provide resources to better your practice in your theater classroom. So grab your coffee or glass of wine, plug in your headphones, or turn up your car stereo, and relax. Thanks for joining me for these heartwarming conversations and practical advice from other theater teachers on the front lines making a difference in their students' lives each and every day. I'm very excited to welcome to the podcast a very dear friend of mine and um, wonderful music teacher. Um, And I know there are some teachers who are probably wise. Why is he talking with a music teacher? Well, you're going to find out. Um, But I'm very excited to bring on my friend Eric Whitehill, who is a music teacher at Broadmoor Elementary in Tempe, Arizona. This is his 14th year of teaching. And um, Eric, it's so good to finally have you on the show. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Glad to have you. And as always, I just want to hear your story and your kind of your journey to how we got where we are now. So I'm going to turn it over to you and let you talk to the teachers right now. All right. Well, uh, I, when I was in high school, was a choir nerd, to say the least, and also a musical theater nerd, which I think is a moniker I will never lose. Um, and then I, and when I graduated from high school, I went to Luther College and was um, set on being a high school music teacher, a high school choir director, because I wanted to have a show choir, because show choir was my life. And uh, when I got to college, I realized that um, that's not a good reason. <laughs> I mean, show choir, don't get me wrong. Show choir is a wonderful, wonderful thing for lots of people. But when you go to a college and say, my, my main thing is let's, let's do show choir, they, they look at you funny. Um, but anyway, long story short, I got a degree in music education. Uh, I really thought I was going to work with middle school when I was done with college and then I got a church job offer in Tempe, Arizona and I went there and I was a church musician for um, 11 years full time. And one of the things that was a big part of that job was putting on a musical with our fourth through eighth graders every year. And we had sort of a stock of shows that um, the church had been doing since the seventies. And I decided that I wanted to write Something. So I ended up writing three musicals uh, for the church, fourth through eighth grade uh, voices, and two of those are now published. Um, but it sort of gave me a bug for what can be done with theater and particularly musical theater with children, and it's a lot. And um, so when that job came to its end, I decided to actually use my music education degree to get a music education job in the uh, public schools. And so I ended up in Tempe School District and I did middle school for a couple of years and then I switched to elementary. And in an elementary land, I started my musicals again and I did a kindergarten musical and a fourth grade musical every year. Uh, And two of those are published. So that's making a total of four that are out in the world, Um, but I've written dozens. So. Uh, Anyway, it's become really clear to me that there's a lot of positive that comes from doing collaborative theatrical things with children and with the adults around them. And so then I ended up pursuing a relationship and moving to North Carolina briefly. 
And coming back, I'm at a new school where because of COVID, I haven't been able to do any theater yet, but certainly that will come. So that's sort of my story in brief. Well, I, I, I want those listening to, to contextualize a little bit more because I, I, I don't want to gloss over the sheer amount of work that you did um, prior to COVID. Not that you're not doing it now, but with right. with the writing of your musicals, because that was two a year that you were writing and producing. That's true. Um, help me here. How did you find time for that? How did you <laughs> like? How well, did you have a life outside fair, of that? A, a musical that the length of each musical is half an hour or less. So, I mean, I know it's still a lot of work. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, it was it was a, just a, a thing that I really wanted to do. And I, I sort of figured out because you're not the first person to talk to me about it. About four months to write a show for me. And, you know, I wanted things to be creative, but I also wanted them to have messages in them for children. So that are really important for me to do. Um, and then I, I mean, I, I'm a composer. I like to write music and writing things with hooks in them, you know, particularly if you want a five-year-old to remember it, um, you know, it's important. And so I just prioritized it. I mean, when I sat down to write, I was writing for, you know, for theater. And, you know, at the time I was writing those shows, I was single and, you know, eating ramen noodles and that doesn't take a lot of time to prep. You know, so I dedicated a ton of time. Incidentally, I'm not doing that anymore. But <laughs> no, you're um, a wonderful. And my current cook. school hasn't has it. I mean, of the 14 shows I've written, or whatever the number is, uh, they haven't seen any of them. So I don't have a lot of pressing need to write a whole bunch of new ones when I've got seven <laughs> years of shows that we could do. <laughs> and I'm gonna probably retire in ten. So I don't know <laughs> how long. But um, but yeah, it's it's a giant amount of work. I also wrote for a pit. I mean, I have friends that would come and play, so I would have twelve or thirteen players coming. So violins and flutes and clarinets and the, the whole nine yards. So that was the part that really took the time. Yeah, I mean, I could throw down a, some lyrics and throw down a melody and teach it to five year olds in a day, but to write out, you know, oh, I don't know, five hundred measures of music for twelve instruments and then edit all of that. <laughs> yeah, that takes a long time. Well, I am I am continually impressed with you, and I uh, I want to unpack a little bit about your um your your high school experiences and and when you went to college, wanting to to have your own show choir. What 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 did those experiences um do for you, and how did they help shape who you are now as an educator? Well, I mean, part of it was that. I had a high school choir director, Gary Fiscus was his name. He passed away from cancer a few years ago. Um, but I just wanted to be him. And <laughs> I wanted to be in whatever I could be in so that I could be, you know, doing the kinds of things that he was doing. And so I drifted towards accompanying a lot. I mean, I accompanied everything that I wasn't singing pretty much. And um, show choir was no to that. I mean, I was the singing dancing person in show choir, but then I accompanied the junior show choir. So I got to play the, you know, cool Mac Huff arrangements of Barry Manilow and all that fun stuff that, you know, but I mean, show choir, the thing about it that I really like is that the music is varied 
and it's exciting and the visuals that match it with the movements. I don't know. It's me. It's sort of the same reason why I like a company front tap number in a show, you know, because it's, there's something about movement and unison and singing and that's sort of magic. And I just wanted to be a part of that as much as I could be. And of course, when I got to college, I learned that there are many, many ways you can experience that magic that don't involve tap shoes and, you know, sequence, but. But they're much better with them. So. But still, I mean, but <laughs> I, I basically went, well, true. I, I went to my high school choir director and I basically said, where can I go to college where I can learn to do what you do? And he said, how about Luther College? And that's what happened. He said, you know, why don't you accompany a whole bunch? I'm like, okay. And that's been a thing that's been a part of my life, collaborative piano forever, you know, since. The, so it shaped my life. It was my life, you know? And I, I mean, one of the things that happened, I mean, it just, I mean, without being too touty of my own skills, but I discovered by through him, through my choir director, that I had some skills that I didn't even know I had. I mean, I had a really good ear, and I didn't know I had that until suddenly I realized I could find my notes in a quartet, one on a part, you know, that sort of thing. And so that's another reason why I want to do music education, is that I want to find that talent that's in kids and give it a chance to grow and to, for them to even know about it. Because a lot of times they're not even aware they have an innate skill. And so the fact that I sort of gravitated towards the five-year-olds and means that I can be at the rudimentary level of encouraging. And I really, really enjoy that. So, Well, I would love to dig into a little bit of your process when it comes to producing your shows. Um, once you've written them um, and, and you're in the process of creating that work with the students, what is that like? Because I know you have massive numbers involved in that. Um, and, and you've got your own way to do that. That is pretty streamlined. Well, it is, I mean, it's sort of a unique thing. Um, when I was in my church job, one of the things that we did, oh, I don't know, every other year or so, we would do these giant fundraising events for our high school choir that I was co-director of. And we did these events where there was a silent auction and entertainment and dinner and, what would happen is my job for those events would be, I need to provide the entertainment part, which means I need to teach a bunch of kids something really fast that sounds and looks amazing and can be thrown together in a half an hour. And so what we ended up doing was a double cast situation. So we would cast one group of kids to hold scripts in their hands and radio show style, read the script into microphones, no memorizing, Everything sounds great because you can practice it and it's in your hands. It takes no time to put together and is a really good solution for everyone, particularly in a church situation, to be able to hear. I mean, if a word isn't sent into a microphone, it's not heard. And yet we didn't have microphones for each person to strap to their ear and all that stuff. So anyway, then we have another group of kids that would pantomime on the stage. They just move their arms and wear costumes and do the things without actually saying a word, not lip syncing, it's not necessary to do that because it's impossible to get it to line up, but just gesturing and facial expressions and all that stuff. And I could throw together three sketches like that in an hour and a half and call it a day. And then we could do it and everybody got a job. And so when I got to elementary land, I started thinking like, all right, so I'm going to do a, a musical with my fourth graders. I have 130 fourth graders. How do I have, you know, six roles? For kids to do and not have 134 kids that are going to be disappointed and so i started thinking like how can i incorporate more 
How can I give more kids a special part? And so I thought, I remember that double casting thing that we used to do back at King of Glory all those years ago. And so, you know, I, for fourth graders, I cast a group of fourth graders to read and they're not memorized. And there's a bunch of music stands and a bunch of microphones off to the side. We don't need to have an individual wireless for each person for this to be successful. And then I have a group of kids that are wearing costumes on the stage. So instead of having six kids get a special part, now 12 kids get a special part. Nobody has to memorize anything. I mean, the kids that are gesturing and miming have to sort of memorize a sequence. But I have teachers that are on the stage that push them on the stage and gesture them off the stage. And again, I can throw it together really, really fast. And so that process of giving kids that are good readers who aren't necessarily good actors, or I should say body actors. They're not, just because they know how to read a script with emotion doesn't mean that their body interpretation necessarily plays. And then vice versa, we've got kids that couldn't read it convincingly at all, who would put on a costume and do a cartwheel on the stage and be delighted, you know? And so I can match more kids with a skill, but maybe not necessarily triple threat skill to a part and choosing the readers is a big deal. Choosing readers that can emote and can speak clearly and at a pace that's understandable. I mean, that's not every kid in fourth grade. I can tell you that right now. And for the ones that it is, they might be a really shy kid who likes to read. And yet they have a part now where they can not even be, I mean, I always make sure that <laughs> they can be seen. I don't hide them behind the stage or anything. I put them off to the side because I think grandma and mom and aunt Matilda would be really unhappy if they couldn't see their child when they're performing. Sort of the other golden rule I have is that I don't do solos in my musicals. I don't have kids sing solos ever. And I also would never have a kid off to the stage singing a solo and a kid on the stage pretending to sing a solo. That doesn't make any sense to me. And the other, I mean, sort of my thing is, okay, so this isn't a Broadway show. It is theater education for children. And so I want all the kids to have a chance to sing the lead character's song. I mean, sort of like when churches have a song the congregation really wants to sing, but they have the adult choir sing it instead. I'm like, yeah, that's nice, but let's give the people a communal chance to experience. So I tell them during the solos, during the parts where the characters would be singing, the character on stage is gesturing, but so is everybody on the risers. And they're all being that character in the moment. And I think that's really fun because then they all get to sort of sing their angry song and sing their happy song and to show that physically, you know, and also orally. I just, I, it's not worth it to me to cast a solo and have all those kids feel unhappy. And it's not worth it to me to try and have an understudy because kids get sick and all the things. And I don't think elementary kids understand understudy very well. That's a, that's a difficult concept. To, you may not do this, but work on it. I don't like that. I mean, I understand why in the real world of theater, that's a good thing. But when you're 10, I, I've, anyway, so that's, I mean, that's my general thing. So, I mean, I don't know if you want to talk about process of the actual writing of the show, but I mean, this is certainly my process of implementing it. 
Well, I would love to hear. I, I would love to hear some of your process with writing, because and, and 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 to plug some of your shows, because I I know you've sent me video clips through the years, and like Little Red Backpack stands on my mind. Um, <laughs> Little Red Jetpack. Yeah. Jetpack. Thank you. That's not thank a published you. one, but that's one that I yes. But at any rate, um, well, I mean, for me, I I I'm lyrics and music, and it's almost always lyrics first for me. Um, and sort of figuring out what are the song moments in a story. Sometimes those things happen at the same time. Sometimes the story comes way first. That's the hardest part for me. I mean, yeah, I'm going to write some derivative stuff because, you know, there's seven plots in all of the world. And uh, this is going to be one of them. The children that are singing it are five, you know, but to try and figure out, all right, I want to write a show about frogs. I mean, cause I do. And so what, what could a frog's problem be, you know, and sort of, we talk about it. We use <laughs> the whole like um, bubble maps and all that fun stuff that smart, smart maps and things that we do in our, <laughs> in our training, <laughs> but you know, it's always got to be put the character in some sort of crisis and have some sort of resolution. And so anyway, that's, I, I start with a concept and then, I, you know, <laughs> I joke about this. The first thing I do is choose the font for the title. <laughs> that determines everything. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But, you know, but I, I, I definitely want to market what I write. So I'd always have logos and always have, you know, artwork that goes with it. That, you know, that's another passion of mine. I think if I would have not pursued a career in music, it would have been in, in graphic art in some form. So that gives me another outlet. Um, but I guess the biggest thing for me when I'm putting it together in the first place is if I'm going to ask a child to put these words in their mouth in front of people that I want the people hearing it to appreciate it, but I also want it to actually mean something to the kid. If the kid is singing some song about how, you know, we need to help each other find flies because we will not be able to eat dinner because we're frogs, you know, I mean, it. I don't want them to say something that doesn't mean something to them which means that the plots have to be pretty simple, especially for the little ones. Uh, my published work are what I do for kindergarten. There's a giant market for the fourth grade through middle school theater market. I mean, there's just a ton of music. And with MTI Junior and some of those companies that put out name shows that, I mean, it's hard to compete with that. And the publishers are like, we will make $0, even if it's the best show you've ever written. So I love that you're doing it, but no thanks. Um, but on the other hand, they're like, do you have things for children younger than third grade? I'm like, why, yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how. So Panda and the Moon and Puzzle Puppy are my two. We branded them K2. In my mind, they're K. But if you did them traditionally, where kids are memorizing their parts and all that stuff, certainly second grade would not find it inappropriate. Um, I don't think most people do the shows the way I do them. So they probably would look at that and go, kindergartners can't memorize all of that. Well, true. But also when I double cast kindergarten shows, adults are reading the, the lines. I don't have five-year-olds doing that. <laughs> that that's another whole story. But I don't know. Did I answer your question? <laughs> you did. You did. And I, I think it's important to to share the things that you do because I think there are elementary teachers out there who are 
struggling and trying to figure out how do I, they're given the expectation of putting on these huge shows sometimes with every grade level. Um, and how, how do I make that happen so that it's not just six kids in the limelight and everyone else up on risers watching, but it's, you're, you're involving everyone. And I think, I think it's good to hear different ways of doing that. Yeah. I mean, there are certainly people that would look at it and go, you know, why don't we let the kid actually memorize and speak dialogue? I'm like, my reason is just technology we don't have and time we don't have. That doesn't mean you couldn't do it that way if you so desired. You know, and as I talked to the publishers, I mean, this was Heritage Music Press. Uh, they they thought what we, they really wanted to give a competitive product to MTI by making it lots cheaper. I mean, like mm. my book, I think the, I think it sells for $49 or something like that. And with that, you get a copy of the score. You also get a CD that has instrument parts and uh, backing tracks and good grief posters and all of, I mean, they, they really, but they wanted it to all be a thing that you could duplicate. You buy one thing and you can duplicate it however you want to. And that's really good. Now, I will say that it has sold in my, for me, really well, like 500 copies of my musicals are out there in the world. But as far as the company making money from them, because it's so cheap, I mean, when a school does the show, it warrant, it brings the company $49. It brings me $4.90. Hmm. And I think even having sold that many, I think they would need to have to sell that many and more of each one to actually make a profit. I mean, and of course with COVID, profits in <laughs> all these companies have become much more important than perhaps maybe they were before. But they basically told me, these shows are great. We've got lots of positive feedback about them. However, we don't want any more of them because we aren't making any money. Hmm. <laughs> so therefore, I am sitting here with all of these shows trying to figure out what to do. So I decided to try and experiment and there's uh, Teachers Pay Teachers is a website where educators upload things and you can upload anything. I mean, anything uploadable. So MP3s and PDFs and whatever else. And so I decided to put my Amelia Earhart musical that I did for fourth grade there. And a friend of mine in Tucson bought it. I don't remember what we're charging for it, but I made more money from that one purchase <laughs> than I've made in anything else I've done in my career career but at any rate my point is that i'm trying to find alternate methods to get these things out there so websites such as teachers say teachers might be a way that people could have access to my work other than the ones that are published because right now like i said i've got two church musicals published and that's a whole different market and a whole different everything but as far as elementary school shows go it's the two younger elementary shows so we'll see. I mean, maybe the market will change and I can, you know, mainline publishers, they take a bigger chunk of the money, of course. Yeah. But I also have such great faith in what they do with that money. They market me in a way that I could never do with Teachers Pay Teachers. Um, so anyway, I mean, this is rather fresh and new right now that things are sort of reinitiating yeah. in all of those areas. So I don't know. It'd be interesting to see how this goes, but. <laughs> hey, if there are people out there that want to do a show that no one else has done, 
<laughs> other than me. <laughs> Call me, I'll help you. But. Um, well, I, I, I also know how, how just how much you, as a music teacher, use um, theater techniques in your class with your students. Um, the your 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 monkey, the puppet. Um, he is a big part of what you do with your kids, and For sure. and I know you made the the, the videos during quarantine of of the monkey on many adventures. So, yes, uh, can did. you talk a little bit about that and kind of some of the the things that you do with your kids? Well, I, I'm trying to remember when I started doing the puppet. It was early on. Basically, what I the issue I was facing was I hate it. Well, hate strong. I'm very much displeased when kindergartners cry on the first day of school in my room. And I, I don't ever want my room to be a place that's so scary that you just burk it into tears because you're there. And so um, I, I had the puppet and I decided that I was gonna make it my goal for one school year, whatever year that was, that have no kindergartners cry because if you make them laugh before they have an opportunity to be nervous, well, I mean, there's there's a lot of <laughs> teacher ground to be gained there <laughs> so larry is a perfect example of everything you're not supposed to do and what i have learned in my career over the years is that when i say things wrong on purpose and they correct me they remember and so larry sits on my shoulder and when i'm looking this direction he goes bananas and when i look at him he stops that's the gag 100 percent of the gag is this I mean, I guess you can't see it, but <laughs> it's my hand waving in the air. And then when I turn to look at it, it freezes. And so the kids think that's hilarious. I mean, and I've done a thousand variations on that, you know, you know, Larry's taking a nap. Now let's be really quiet. And when I look away, he's really awake. And then we look back, he falls asleep. I mean, whatever. I mean, but the kids, I mean, I've, you know, this year because of a series of family issues and with illness, I've missed more school this year than I've missed ever before. And when I come back, <laughs> I promise you the first question is, is Larry back? Oh. <laughs> Mike, you know, I love you too. <laughs> and I'm like, you understand it's my hand, right? <laughs> but, and they, I mean, there's nobody that has any illusion that Larry's not a puppet. I mean, everybody knows. But it's, <laughs> that he, I get asked very often. I get to the point now, even with the older kids, I have to say, if you ask the answer is no, period. If you don't ask and there's two minutes left, you never know what might happen. But at any rate, just puppets are, I mean, Larry is the my sort of central character and he doesn't speak. That's the other thing, except in the videos I gave him a voice because I couldn't do a whole video <laughs> for six minutes and have him not make a sound. But um but I use puppets a lot and I, I find that kids really relate to it and they really like it. And then video puppeting is, I have a green screen in my room now. I mean, it's limitless to the things that you can do. And I frequently, I will do the lunch choices the announcements at school every day. And I've gotten to the point now where I've got a narwhal puppet that swims through the ocean. And I mean, all the things that happen. It's just, it's super fun. And the kids really relate to puppets. I mean, I think it's back to Fred Rogers, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, everybody knows that Fred Rogers is the voice of, you know, 10 of the puppets on his show and they love it. So yes, I mean, I, I also would like to say that humor is a giant part of my life. I mean, I, I guess humor is a 
drama technique uh, among teaching techniques. <laughs> um, and I find if kids laugh, it's a good thing. There's just it's just never it's never going to backfire. Kids laughing if they feel so comfortable that they think something is funny and they can laugh, then they're not going to cry, and they're likely not to threaten to throw a chair or you know smash a drum. Well, you Another also <laughs> yeah you, yeah absolutely. Um, I know you also work with um, or I know before COVID. I'm not sure if you if you have after um, with uh, with different high schools in your area and and. Playing for I played them. pit piano for fourteen shows, I think. Yeah, what, um, what yeah. what's that like for you? And and specifically, I'm wanting um, to know from your perspective, kind of an outside theater teacher's point of view of collaboration with music educators and theater educators. And what are some things that you wish? Because I know it's not you're not necessarily music directing, but you're 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 playing and accompanying. What do you, what in your observations? What are things that you wish theater teachers knew about communicating and collaborating with music educators? It's a great question. I mean, in the case of most of the shows that I played, the music director, who is the choir director at the school, um, is one of my good friends, and I knew his work before I knew him. And when given an opportunity to participate in an extremely successful theater program, and um, the school I was playing at had a real, has still has a really wonderful drama teacher and a choir director that model collaboration in a way that most high schools that I've at least experienced don't do. There's not a competitiveness about you get those kids and I don't sort of mm -hmm. thing. It's we'll work together with the kids that we have. And I think that's unusual. Mm -hmm. And it was attractive to me. I thought, here we have this great musician and this great theater educator who together, you know, we could put on a show like Big Fish or Legally Blonde that's a giant show with giant sets and giant everything. Um, and it was super fun. And being in the pit, frequently I was the only adult in the pit other than the person conducting who rotated between different teachers in the school, orchestra, band. Um, and so I liked being with the kids. I mean, so the pit players were almost always high school kids. Mm -hmm. A few times the drummer was an adult or maybe we had French horn for Cinderella or something that was an adult because it's just super hard. Pit, <laughs> pit French horn, I mean. That's not a thing most 17 year olds can do, but regardless, uh, I really enjoyed sort of experiencing working with these kids. I wasn't in charge of them. I mean, so I didn't have a responsibility to direct them, but it was just a joy to see them being directed and to have them feel super um, supported and also to have them feel like, you know, what they did really improved and really showed. Um, you know, I, I have played in a bunch of different places and not all of them have that where the kids feel like they're supported from every angle. And that, like I said, the theater aspect of it and the singing aspect of it so closely meshed together. I mean, I think the worst thing that I've experienced in my playing is just feeling like my time isn't valued. Like, for instance, I'm sitting in the pit with a bunch of instrumentalists 
and we're sitting there for 45 minutes not playing in a rehearsal. And, you know, it's one thing for high school students who are there for that rehearsal time, and maybe it's not their moment. But when me, the professional adult, has to sit there and not do anything for, you know, 45 minutes, that's that's pretty grievous, in my opinion. So I think the best thing that you can do, in my opinion, is when you work together is that you value the time and try to use it efficiently. You know, and the worst is where you find yourself, I guess, wasting time is how I look at it. But all I'm saying is that my experiences for the most part have been really positive. And because I could see that collaboration and see the result of that collaboration, I wanted to also be a part of that collaboration. Yeah, I my my daughter just finished uh, their musical uh, a few weeks ago at, at the high school that she goes to. And she came home one night. It was it must have been during tech week or or when they started run throughs with the orchestra. Um, and like, she was just going off about the orchestra. They're too slow. They're not doing this. They're blah, blah, blah. And I, I let her get it out of her, out of her system. And then I tried to help her reframe it that, you know, you all have been working with the same script that the actors on Broadway use. Those high school musicians are playing the same music that the Broadway performers are playing. I said, and they've had just as much time, if not less, to learn those parts. So you got to give them a little grace. And when you're putting things together, there there is that time where things have to, I don't want to say fall apart, but but there is a kind of a rebuilding when you put the two worlds together and then it comes together, right? Well, you have to have, you, you take a shot in the dark to start with. Yeah. That everything will work and the, and you just have to take a breath and just go for it. And yeah, like you say, it's it's likely to train wreck at least the first time, mm-hmm. you know. And please understand too that I'm just listening to myself in my head the things I'm saying. I mean, I don't have any issue with when I'm in a pit and it's tech week and things fall apart, whatever. My big issue is when you call a group to be there and then don't utilize them during the time that you called them to be there. That's you're, a problem. You're reworking but, blocking and choreography. And it's like, you've right. got an I mean, orchestra and, and sitting and there waiting. There are, there are extreme circumstances of that. You know, we're doing a thing and the set piece rolls out backwards and pulls a curtain down. Clearly you're going to stop and everybody's going to stop, but it, all the people are going to stop until that problem is fixed. That's not what I'm talking right, about. Right, right. I'm fully, So when your daughter has that frustration, I hear that frustration because when you've been working with your group, and everything's going great at the speed and everything tempo and everything. And then you're adding another group that has not necessarily the same exposure, but also the same, you know, understanding of the whole. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that your average oboe player doesn't necessarily look at listen to the soundtrack to hear how it all fits together. They're trying to play the part on their page and do the best they can to follow. And it is hard, especially when you have all these places that are you know, safeties to catch. So dialogue happens and you have to know whether it's the last time through. And then when there's a page turn on the repeat and just, I mean, all the things that, you know, a pit player goes through. So yes, I mean, yes, that's the joy though. Right. You have to be able to take a risk. You have to say, I know it's probably not going to work the first time, but let's just punch ahead and see what happens. And I think it's hard for a 16 year old to understand that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's hard for some 
high school teachers to understand that too. So some theater teachers, so that I know of for sure, because um, I'm guilty of one of my earlier experiences directing a show, and I had a live pit for the first time in the high school, and I, I said some things, and I did some things, and I, I that I regret, and and it it luckily it didn't professionally damage my relationship with the the conductor and and the 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 pit, and I did have to have a moment where I apologize to them and you know like i i messed up and i apologize and i'm gonna do better going forward yeah i hear that yeah well i mean the thing about it is people that are interested in either musical performing in not outside of theater like orchestra people Mm -hmm. or people that are i mean they tend to be passionate (laughs) you know and they tend to have an idea in their head of what is right and when you put a bunch of people like that together in the same room (laughs) you know (laughs) There's a lot of chefs in the stew. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I hear that though. I, I totally do. I was going to say something else and it went out of my head. It'll probably come back. But. Well, if it comes back, well, I can edit it back in. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> um, I would love for you to, to plug your work a little bit for us right now. Where, where can teachers find your work and where can they find you on Teachers Pay Teachers as well? Well, uh, my kindergarten through second grade musicals are at Heritage Music Press which is part of the Lorenz Corporation, uh, easily found. Um, it is the two shows that are out there are Panda and the Moon and uh, Puzzle Puppy, which is a kindergarten noir, which is a new medium that I think I invented. Um, no, <laughs> it's, it's like a whole like send up of the black and white detective thing. Uh, I think it's really fun. Um, and then my church musicals are published by Choristers Guild uh, one is called Journey to Bethlehem, which is clearly a Christmas musical. Uh, and the other is called Esther, uh, the story of Queen Esther. Uh, again, choristers guild and easily found. And I think both companies uh, market through uh, JW Pepper uh, website. And so, and then I have a website, which is um, whitehill-composer.com, where I have links to all of the things that I have that are published my education book and um, my choral pieces and my musical theater stuff. Um, as far as teachers pay teachers off the top of my head, I can't remember how I have it listed, but if you go there and type white Hill, it will certainly pull up. And there I have everything you would need to put on the show and all priced separately. Um, I think the score is more the most expensive because in my mind, that's also giving you the rights. So there's a little bit of that there. So uh, other than that, I have a whole bunch of musical theater work that is sitting in my computer trying to figure out what to do with it. But if people contact me and are interested in doing a thing, I'm sure we could come to some sort of arrangement. Good deal. Well, I will make sure that I put those links on when your episode comes out so the teachers have that and, and can reach out to you and find your work out there. Um, Eric, I would love to know one of your favorite stories from your career so far. It could be a funny story, a horror story, a touching moment, just anything at all. Oh, goodness. I have so many. Um, well, uh, one funny one is that it was a, it was all about not me not hearing a student correctly and it ballooned terribly. I was doing a kindergarten lunch duty and a kindergartner said to me, Mr. Whitehill, I finished my mushrooms. And I thought, there aren't any mushrooms on your plate. You didn't eat mushrooms. I have no idea why you would say that. So I said something like, oh, 
wonderful. Go sit down. And Mr. Whitehill, I've finished my mushrooms. What do you want? A sticker? I'll bring you one tomorrow. Just go sit down. Mr. Whitehill, I finished your mushrooms. Yes, I know. Just stop and sit. And then another kid said to me, Mr. Whitehill, he's saying he has to go to the bathroom. (laughs) Now, go back and replay that. So he says to me, Mr. Whitehill, I have to go to the bathroom. And I say, oh, that's nice. Mr. Whitehill, I go to the bathroom. What do you want to do? Bring you a sticker? Mr. Whitehill, I have to go to the bathroom. I need to go sit down. Yeah, fine. So that was a horrible moment in my day, in my life. I just, I don't know how I got it in my head, mushrooms, but somehow that's what I heard. Of course, with masks, it's even worse. That was before masks. But that was pretty funny. Um, You know, and then I had the kid who handed a bag of carrots to me and said, open these. And I said, well, you're going to have to use some polite words. And he said, you may open these. (laughs) I said, well, you get one per lifetime in that. Um, uh, As far as touching ones go, I mean, that's, that's harder to articulate. I've just had very, very many kids over the years who have hugged me and said things that they enjoyed my class and that they, you know, that they want to teach music that they are looking forward to my class every time. You know, those are nice things. And I find if you put a lot of good, you know, sort of, I'm not really a karma believer, but putting out there in the world, good things that people will notice and people will align to them in ways that are unexpected and beautiful. Um, I'm very blessed. I mean, I, I just, I have a lot of a lot of young people in my life who value what they've done with me and continue to do with me. And that makes me feel good. It makes me feel like what I'm doing makes a difference. Um, you know, I, I, I think about people who complain about going to work. I must admit there's times when the work is, the work part of it is less appealing, but I never think about the purpose of it being less appealing. And it's sort of what gets me up in the morning. And so, yeah, I, I, I mean, like every teacher in the universe, I've had a really rough couple of years, but the kids seem to continue to respond and they're so glad to be together. I mean, trying to teach music without being able to make any communal sound at the same time is hmm. soul crushing. <laughs> and so I've definitely felt that being in person again has been appreciated. Um, and again, like I said, it, it, it gets me up in the morning to know that, you know, it also encourages me to be more creative, too, because if they're going to enjoy being there, I mean, I should make the thing that they're enjoying worth doing. And one of the things I tell my student teachers and interns is that if being removed from your class isn't a punishment, you're doing something wrong. You know, so if you tell a kid, you know, if you do that thing again, then you have to sit over there and not participate. And if they don't care, then I think you failed. Hmm. And so I, you know, I'm not saying that every case, but I'm just in general, if being removed from the activity isn't a punishment, then you need to look at that activity again. Um, so I guess I, I feel like every time I do sit down to create something, whether it be a musical theater piece or a lesson or a puppet game or whatever, that it, it motivates me to know that a people are going to be looking forward to a thing and B 
that I want that thing to be awesome. And I wouldn't want them to come out of my room saying, I love class today, but the thing we did was watch a movie. I'm not saying that I never show a movie, but I'm just saying that it uh, is, it's rewarding. I mean, it's rewarding in, a, in ways that are hard to articulate. You know, it's funny, I, I just renewed my certificate, my teaching certificate, and it is good until 2032, I think. 2034, maybe, I guess 2034, which means I will be 60, 60 years old when that occurs. And I thought I could retire at that point because I can, I would have enough points in the state retirement system to do that. And I thought, mm, I seriously doubt I'm ready to be done in 10 years, but I mean, who knows? But anyway, so I don't know if that fully answers your question. There are silly and laughable moments that happen practically daily, you know, but and the touching ones happen practically daily too. And it's, it's funny, a friend of mine just took a position teaching general music in my district and I'm the chair for the district this year. So I'm trying to look out for people and see what I can do to help and support them. And they got their first note from a first grader saying that they love their music teacher and that music is their favorite thing of the day. I'm like, so make a file folder of that. I know file folders are a thing that feel like antiquity, but do it because you, you digital form was not going to help. So then the day that, you know, the kid throws a drum at you and says a swear word and runs out of your room, you go back to your desk after it's all over and settled and pull out that form to remember why yeah. you do what you do and that you're very much valued in this whole system. Um, I call it my rainy day box. I have one. And I encourage all my, my teachers, my students to, to get one and to have one for their, from their, student teaching on um and i still have letters from i i have the cards from my student teaching uh when i when i left and was graduating and yep and and yes i mean it, and sometimes the things that you get are so unexpected yeah and you don't realize in the real moment when it actually happened what really happened in the mind of that kid i know i i, I taught middle school choir for a few years before i switched to elementary and it was hard it was a very very urban school with a history of all kinds of terrible things and and families that are well unstable to say the least and i at the end of my three years there i just felt like i i don't i'm not getting anything from this and i would go at the end of the day and just be drained completely and then i would feel my heart sink the next day as the start of the day got closer and closer but even despite all of that, like, I don't know, 10 years ago, no, a few years after middle school was over anyway, I got a letter, a handwritten letter from a kid that had been in my eighth grade choir, I think, um, who was now graduating from high school. So seven years later or whatever it was, and went on and on and on about what middle school choir had meant to him and how it sort of when he was having rough times that he would remember that and it was helpful and all that. And I'm <laughs> tears falling down my face. And, but I don't have any recollection of any of the specifics that he was, I mean, I just was doing my thing and got to have a concert on next Wednesday and here we go. And so you never know, you yeah. absolutely never know. Yeah. So you're right. I think having some sort of receptacle <laughs> to gather these things, you know, and I have, I have more than I can, than I can keep. I mean, 
And that's a blessing. I mean, it truly is, yeah. you know. Well, I'm going to speak for your students uh, that, that they're very blessed as well and that they're very fortunate to have a teacher who's not only as capable and giftedly talented um, a musician, but one that cares for them as much as you do. Thanks. Yeah. Well, Eric, I would love to hear if you have any recommendations for resources uh, that theater teachers need to know about. That's a great question. You know, it's interesting. I don't know if you know this, but one of the years that I was teaching middle school, uh, I can't remember what the whole situation was, but there was some situation where the numbers registering for choir were really low. I think it was after my first year because I replaced a teacher who resigned at, <laughs> after a week. Uh, and there were kids that just weren't looking for structure. <laughs> and I was doing structure. And anyway, so my eighth grade choir was too small for the next year to form. And so the principal said, well, we need you to offer some sort of special for eighth graders. And so I taught theater. And we made it a semester class. And they said, here's your budget, zero dollars. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so <laughs> I went and bought every book I could find, uh, you know, because that's what I, I mean. I, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it. Since I've given those books to other people who actually teach theater all the time. And but there's lots of good stuff out there, of course. Um, I don't know that I have a specific source. I mean, I think don't forget musical theater in places like Heritage uh, and Alfred and some of the other major publishing companies, certainly Hal Leonard. There's lots of resources out there that are music and theater. But I, I said, I don't know that I have a specific actual resource. No, I wrote a book, but it's not a theater book. <laughs> My <laughs> book is a, is a general music uh, lesson plan book, but that's a thing. But. No, I, I think the, the, the resources at the, at the those different websites for musical theater is very good. And I, I think that could be very helpful for, for teachers. But I would say this, just a side note is, I mean, I have many friends at Hal Leonard and I have many friends everywhere, but I would say that just because people recognize the name of a show doesn't mean it's the only thing out there for you to do. Because I mean, yeah, Annie Jr. is wonderful and Beauty and the Beast Jr. is wonderful and all that stuff. And I said, I know people in all those places and I'm not trying to put them down, but I would say for those of us who aren't in those places where we're having shows in New York that are being, you know, put into an hour form for children, um, that you know there are resources and really good stuff out there that isn't necessarily you know shrek again yeah. nothing wrong with shrek <laughs> but <laughs> don't forget the people that have wonderful resources out there that don't happen to have broadway cred so yeah. no that's good that's good and my final question is when i ask everyone and that is just what are your parting words of wisdom for new teachers entering the theater field or that veteran teacher just needing an encouraging word right now I guess I think about what I tell my own interns and student teachers. And of course, my interns and student teachers are musical music education, not theater education specifically. But I always tell them, if you don't love it, please don't do it. Hmm. I mean, I'm not suggesting I want people to leave the field, but I don't want people to do it out of some obligation or some, um, I don't even know, some sort of reason other than loving it and having passion for it because if you don't have passion for it you're gonna burn out i mean there's just there there isn't any way that you can survive in the difficult climate of teaching in any form during any kind of pandemic or not 
it's a hard job. And if you don't have something filling you, it, you'll never succeed. So I would say, I guess if I were going to shape that into a positive way to look at it is when you're feeling at the end of your energy, find your passion. I mean, and if your passion is to keep doing the thing you're doing, marvelous. If your passion is saying, you know what, I really would, I want to be a middle school band teacher and I'm teaching general music right now, or whatever it happens to be, then work toward the thing that actually will feed you. I mean, I look at so many teachers right now and they are just at the end of their ropes mm -hmm. for various reasons. I mean, in my world, I mean, the, the test scores and things that are happening at my particular school right now are really showing signs of growth and improvement compared to the year of mostly online learning. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that every single day there's not that pressure of all oh, my kids are behind all the time because the state testing has no provision that says, yeah, your kids had a horrible year last year. None of that. And so much of that information from those tests affects our lives in so many ways. But I would say I see them and I see them so exhausted and so defeated feeling, you know, and then I see how they get through it. And the way they get through it is they focus on their passion. They're like, oh, yeah, I really like teaching. I remember this now when I think about it. And I know I don't like online teaching at all. Not at all. And as a music teacher, I can say right now, no. <laughs> it's just no. So I guess that's the long story short is when you're at the end of your energy, you have to find a new source for it. And if the source is remembering why you do what you do, great. If the source is somewhere other than where you are right now, start working towards that goal. I think those are great words. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Eric, it was lovely talking with you, and uh, I will make sure that I link all of your work that I can uh, for when this comes out, and, and I just appreciate all that you do for your students and just students all over the place, not just yours, but the others that you work with as well. So thank you, and I hope you have a wonderful rest of your year. Thank you. I appreciate that. I wish you the same. And that is a wrap for this episode of Fed Talks. Thank you so much for checking out this episode. Tune in next week for the next one. We have so many great teachers coming up and so many that have already been with us. So if you are not already subscribed to the podcast, go on your favorite podcast provider, subscribe to us, rate us, leave us five stars, review us. More importantly, share the podcast with those theater educators in your life who you think could benefit from what we're doing here on the show. Visit our website, www.fedtalks.com for the pages for all the teachers who have been on our show. Email me at fedtalkspodcast.com podcast at gmail.com. If you have an idea for a future guest on the show or suggestions or topics that you'd like to have on the show, email me. I love interacting with you on there and I always follow up. Follow us on all of the social media that's out there. We are out there on Twitter at Theater Ed Talks. On Facebook, we have a Fed Talks page and Instagram Fed Talks podcast. Once again, our website is www.fedtalks.com. Thank you teachers for all that you do. Thank you for listening. Continue to be the lights that you are and changing all those lives. I appreciate you. Take care.